0: We are going to uh, look at today a, a passage that is probably, probably in my mind, at least as far as I can see, having done Bill the last few years, at least for me it's become the most significant um, passage to, in, in reference to the heart and um, discipline one, shepherding our hearts with the word of God. Um And the challenge with it is is you could just, most of you have probably looked at the verse and you've probably memorized the verse, Hebrews 4.12. And um, it's one of those, it's it's a classic example of how one of those verses, it's one of those verses where it just stands on its own so well that you can really ignore the context. And if you were then to even slightly get convicted about that, oh, I shouldn't just look at this verse without looking at the context. If you then did that in Hebrews like 3 and 4, you might be tempted to go, I have no idea what's happening there. I just like this verse standing on its own. I'll just kind of stay with it. And so my hope is today that you'll, as we look at the, the context together a little bit, that you'll maybe overcome some fear or some obstacles that might have been there because it is so rich, it is so deep, and it makes all the more sense what the writer of Hebrews is saying when he says for explanation the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far down as you can imagine um, exposing the thoughts and intentions of your heart it just makes all the more sense when when we take a look at it so and the great thing about um, Hebrews 3 and 4, and you can turn there if you haven't already, is, is really it's, it's an example in the New Testament of really a, a preaching of an Old Testament passage. Um, it's The writer of Hebrews is handling Psalm 95, and he's doing something very interesting. He's like saying, he'll, he'll quote a, a phrase, or a, a, a line out of Psalm 95, and then he just offers explanation. And then he quotes another line out of it, and he offers explanation. He's expositing Psalm 95. Um, and it's excellent. We're going to be all over the map this morning of, of the scripture. Um, so we're going to start in Hebrews 3 and 4. We're going to go back to Genesis 2. We're going to work our way back forward and land in in chapter 4, verse 12. But before we do that, what I want to do is I want to pray, and then we'll we'll look at our quote and everything else later at the end, okay? So you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, thinking about our hearts far more than we do. Lord, I, I know that I can In this condition that you've, in your goodness and in your wisdom, left me in, left us in. Being saved with a new heart and yet still having indwelling sin. It is so easy for me to just rush into my day, rush into a conversation, rush into anything without giving thought to where's my heart at right now with you. And so God, at the beginning of this day... We want to um, acknowledge that our hearts need to come into contact with you as your word is open. We want to meet with you, and we want to worship you, and we want to be changed more by you, and we want to become more obedient to you. We want to trust more in you, and so please uh, meet with us as we have your Bible open, as we turn from one page to another to another. And um, I pray for these guys. I thank you for them, Lord. The thought that you've just put on my heart all week is how enjoyable it is to just interact with your word together with them. It's awesome and so encouraging to me. And I look forward to that again this morning. I pray that you would make it abundantly clear that you were at the center of this time together in your word and that each one of us would only be servants to one another to point away from ourselves to you so that Jesus Christ is seen to be the great God and giver of rest that he is. And we ask it in Christ's name, amen. All right, right, let's. I wanna do something um, that I, I hope will, will help us and it, it will require a little bit of, uh, maybe a little bit more, um, what's the word? Focusing or uh, on your part, I wanna read... All of chapter three and four of Hebrews three uh, of Hebrews, so that you um, can kind of get a feel for where chapter four verse twelve is coming from. So, focus in. Follow me as I as I follow along with me as I read through chapters three and four. Okay. Chapter three verse one. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. This is his whole point, isn't it? In Hebrews, he's like. Jesus, you guys are being persecuted, you're being scattered everywhere uh, because of persecution. Um, Guys, I just want to direct you to Jesus Christ. So consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Okay, so what's he trying to do here? At the beginning... You think Moses was great? Oh my goodness. How much more so Jesus? Okay? For every house, verse 4, is built by someone. I don't think got finished verse 3, but just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ, as a son, was faithful over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So again, in verses 1 to 6, what's he doing? He's just saying, Moses? You think that's great? You think there's glory there? Oh man, Jesus! Even more so, right? Now watch this. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. This is where Psalm 95 comes in. He's quoting it. Where your fathers tried me by testing me, and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What does that mean for you, Christians? Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But instead, encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter, enter that land, enter that rest, because of unbelief. Therefore, Christians, let us fear. If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also did. But the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Why did that word not profit them back in the wilderness when they heard it? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard for we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested in the seventh day from all on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long, a time just has been said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, now why does he mention Joshua? He's the one who led him into the land, right? So if Joshua had given them rest, if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there's, layers of rest here. We'll talk about this in a minute. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There's no creature hidden from his sight, that all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, lots of talk about entering my rest, my rest, my rest. I did not enter it. Let's go back and let's work our way through Scripture. Go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. We have, an, we have an opportunity to, to see the exaltedness of Christ. That's what the writer of Hebrews is all about. Concerning Consider Jesus. Remember that in chapter 3? Consider Jesus. Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done and he, what? Rested. On the seventh day, from all his work which he had done, who rested? God rested. Okay. Then God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it. He set it apart. Why did he do that? Because what's it say? Because. Don't look at me. Look down. Because on it he or in it he rested. So what makes this day unique? God rested. Okay. Nowhere in verses 1 to 3 is this rest called the Sabbath. And nowhere in verses 1 to 3 is Adam or Eve or anybody else commanded to obey the Sabbath. This is the burden of of chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. The burden, the main burden, is it's about God and his rest as creator. And what makes that seventh day unique is God. That's the burden. That's what you can, without a doubt, walk away from when you look at that passage. Okay. Um, Now, from the fall in chapter 3, all the way to Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. It's very interesting. The most that you will find, and I encourage you, next time you're reading through the Pentateuch, you're just reading through the rest of Genesis and into Exodus 19. The next time you read that, just watch for this. What, what is the most that you see man doing concerning an idea of a day set apart for rest? You don't see anything anywhere of that. You, the most you see is like in chapter 8, verse 10. There's an understanding that there's a week or seven days. Moses sends the bird out. And it doesn't find anything, and it comes back, and he waits seven days. That's the most you see. Now, what's very interesting is, is the writer, uh, Moses, of the Pentateuch is he's very concerned to make sure that there, when he explains different um, patriarchs worshipping, he's very careful to talk about things like um, circumcision. There, he's, he's very interested in talking about sacrifice the most, and he even mentions stuff like tithing with Melchizedek. So it's not that he's not concerned to talk about worship items. It's just interesting that he would mention those things. And if Sabbath was an important part of worship at that time, Sabbath doesn't get mentioned at all. But sacrifice does. Circumcision does. Tithing does. Okay? So um, you, you don't find that. In fact, the first time you find the word Sabbath existing is in Exodus chapter 16. Go there. Chapter 16, verse 1, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after the departure from the land of Egypt, and then they grumbled. And it talks about meat coming, and it talks about uh, manna coming. Chapter 16, verse 22, now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. And so here you have, before they even really get to Mount Sinai, the first mention of Sabbath. Okay? Um, so what, what's going on here? Um, in chapter 2 of Genesis, there is a day of rest that the Creator made and that the Creator enjoyed and entered into. And it's very interesting that I think it it can be assumed, this is my opinion, that man, Adam, entered into the Creator's work. Not in creating, but in taking care of creation. Remember in Genesis 2.15, He set him in the garden to take care of what was in the garden. And I think it can be assumed, had there not been a fall, obviously it was God's plan to have a fall, But let's pretend for a minute. Had there not been a fall, I think man would have also entered into the Creator's what? Rest. Somehow. Obviously God is planning something different. Um, The interesting thing, if we go back to Genesis 3 now, is that rest of the Creator with the fall is completely impossible. Go back to Genesis 3, verse 17. Go back there this is part of the curse remember he comes and he god does after the fall and says to the woman he gives her the curse and then to adam as well and the serpent as well verse 17 then to adam he said because you listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten from the tree about which i commanded you saying you shall not eat from it cursed is the ground because of you in toil in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. But the, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread, and then you'll die. Let me talk to, talk to you about your life, uh, fallen man. You're just going to work like crazy and die. That's your life. This is this is what's going This is one of the marks of sin on you and in this world. You labor, you labor, you labor, and you die with sweat on your brow. That's your life. To the Creator's rest is impossible after the fall because of sin. And you have the, the wonderful promise, the enigmatic promise, the, the kind of hidden and veiled promise in Genesis 3:15. There's, there's going to be a seed. It's going to come from you, woman. And this problem that the serpent brought in and introduced, he, there's going to be a battle. And he's going to come. And it's interesting. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, when Eve has a son, Cain. The Hebrew is just very plain. It just says, literally she says, I have gotten a man, the Lord. Now what do we do to help smooth it out in our translations in chapter 4, verse 1? Mine says, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Some think that in verse 1 she's wondering, is this one Man, that I just gave birth to, baby, a mankind that I just gave birth to, could he be the one? There's an anticipation that from Genesis 3, there's an anticipation someone's coming. Is this the man? Now go to Genesis chapter 5, verse 28. You go through the whole um, genealogy that's given and People live long lives, and so hundreds of years have gone by. Now look at verse 28 of chapter 5. Lamech lived 182 years, and he became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Hundreds of years later, what is still on man's mind? This is a tough life. Is this the one who might bring us rest? You see, there's this anticipation of, is there one coming? Is there some, some rest that's going to, some relief that's finally going to come? And so when you get to Exodus, the book of Exodus, and you get to chapter 16, and now there's the mention of Sabbath, you have this, all of a sudden God is talking about rest in, in the form of, of a day. Now, how is God revealed in Exodus? Primarily as the one who came to redeem. So, in Genesis, in the beginning of Genesis, he's revealed as creator. He made everything, he worked as creator, and then he rested as creator. But then there's this huge problem with sin. Sin enters in, and you read through the rest of Genesis, and you get to Exodus, and God comes on the scene powerfully in Exodus, not as the creator. Still is, don't get me wrong. He doesn't ever abandon his role as creator. But he comes on the scene as redeemer. And he worked powerfully as redeemer. Did he not in the beginning of Exodus? Plague after plague after plague, judgment, and keeping Israel separate from all of that plague, delivering them out with a strong arm, parting water, passing them through, and then slamming the door shut. Genesis 15, they sing a song to their redeemer. Chapter 16, rest. The Redeemer's rest. And so then you have this explosion of Sabbath language in Exodus at Mount Sinai. In fact, you have Sabbath mentioned in terms of a weekly Sabbath. There's one day every single week in which I want you guys to rest. I want rest to come forth from you on a weekly cycle. Boom. A week will go by and there will be a picture of rest that comes from this nation called Israel. In fact, I've got another way I want you to express rest. Every seven years, rest. The land needs it. The, 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 you need rest. Every 50 years, the year of Jubilee, your slaves all let go if they want to be free. The land that... You bought from each other, you redeem from one another, it goes back to the one who owned it. Rest. There are cycles of rest that are just coming forward from these this nation called Israel, and it's the rest of the redeemer. It's really amazing what's happening. And then David, King David, writes a song. Called Psalm 95. And he says. Don't harden your own heart when you hear his voice, because you have to be sure to enter his rest. Time out. There already is rest, David. Remember, you got the Sabbath day, you got the seventh year, you got the year of jubilee, and then there's also kind of the rest that Joshua led them into when they came to the land, right? And David, you've been there for a long time. What do you mean they don't enter the rest? The only reason he mentions that they didn't know the rest is because he's aware that oh, these cycles of rest and these pictures of rest are just that. They're pictures of a greater rest that you can do these motions, go through these motions of these other rests. You can even move into the promised land and still miss the rest. The bigger rest. The more important rest. Do you get it? In the wilderness, they have rest. They have Sabbath rest. They have the seventh year rest. In a promised land, they entered into rest, so to speak. But the point is, by Psalm 95, there had been a greater rest anticipated all along. And David knew it. And he warned the people. Now go to the Gospels. Go to one Gospel, Matthew 11. Verse 28. Are you with me so far? Matthew 11, verse 28, one of my just favorite verses. I love this. There's so much. There's so much more to it when now that you have this in your mind. What does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are what? Weary, heavy laden, burdened down. You're tired. You're worn out. And I will give you rest. That is a very, very salvation historical powerful thing to say. A Jew hearing those, a Jew understood his Bible hearing that would have gone, Oh, my, what are you saying? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. What did you use a yoke for? Yeah, labor. An animal you're going to work for me and I'm going to control you. See, this one who's offering rest, he has work. That is to be done. And you need to put it on and you need to and it's not working for salvation. It's work as a result of salvation. Put my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is life. Because he's not putting the requirement on you to work, to gain righteousness. You're working from righteousness. Now, how does chapter 12 start? At that time, Jesus went to the grain fields on the, oh my, <coughs> rest. It's almost like Matthew knew what he was doing, isn't it? And his disciples became hungry. They began to pick the heads of grain and eat. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh, big, huge problem. Here's a guy who just claimed to um, be able to provide rest, and now he's breaking a cycle of rest in, in their view. Now, we'd have to be able to discern if he actually truly indeed is breaking Sabbath law or is he breaking the Pharisees' view? Of Sabbath law, And you always have to do this. Everywhere in the New Testament when law is talked about because it was so predominant what the Pharisees and the religious hypocrites had done with law, turning it into a works-oriented law. God never gave the law so that men would save themselves with it. But that was the view. But Jesus does something very interesting here. He talks about, don't you know what David did? Don't you know what the priest did in the temple? But notice what he says in verse 6. Something greater... Then the temple is here. And if you had known what 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 this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. In other words, I'm not I'm not guilty, I'm innocent. For the Son of Man is what? Lord. So Jesus is bigger than the Sabbath day. Okay, this is huge. This remember is this the one who'll give us rest? Is this the one? This anticipation. This anticipation, this anticipation, he says, I'll give it to you. And I'm bigger than the Sabbath. I'm bigger than the Sabbath. Now go to Hebrews chapter three. Let's go back there and we'll we'll stay there now. Hebrews chapter 3. I want you to look at verses 1 to 6 again with me. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider. Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, he was faithful to him who appointed him, like Moses was in all his house. For he, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Everything Moses was about, including the rest that Moses promised and gave to them in cycles of rest in the Sabbath day, in the seventh year, in the the year of Jubilee, Jesus has more glory than any in all of that. Moses was faithful, verse 5, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Therefore, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. There's a rest. If Christ is greater than Moses, and his glory is greater than Moses, then Christ's rest is greater than Moses' rest that he offered. That's the point. And so here's what's going on in the book of Hebrews. Christians are being persecuted and they are running for their lives. And you know what they're tempted to do at this point? To think less of Jesus and to think more of Mosaic law. And they're thinking, I don't know why they would think this. You and I would probably do the same thing. Get distracted from grace, get distracted from the gospel by the persecution and start thinking of maybe things that we can do. And they start thinking of, well, we, need to, we need to get back to the Sabbath day. That's what it is. As Christians, as Jews who sort have of become Christians, we need to get back to the Sabbath. That's what they're thinking. And he is saying, consider Jesus. He's greater than Moses. There's a rest that's greater. God's rest is missed, he's saying, not by missing the Sabbath day. God's rest is missed by... Missing Jesus. God's rest is missed by disbelieving Jesus. God's rest is missed by disobeying Jesus. Do you understand this? Now, I should have told you, we haven't even got to number one yet. But the major theme of chapter 3 and 4, this is your centered thing right in the middle. The major theme is the salvation rest of God the salvation rest of God. Look at verse 11. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. One of the two things that are put kind of in contra- uh, contrast with one another. Wrath, judgment, not being saved, and what? The opposite. Rest, no wrath, no judgment, saved. Verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who are disobedient. So you can't go into rest, you can't go into that salvation because of disobedience. Verse 9, 19. So we see that they're not able to enter because of what? Unbelief. These are like salvation words. Unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if all the promise remains of entering his rest. Any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Um, verse 3. He says it again. My wrath, my rest. Uh, Verse 5. They shall enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains to enter it. Verse 6. Those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. So you got good news preached bound up to it. Disobedience bound up to it. 8, 9, and 10. There's there's a greater rest to come. And they fell because of disobedience. Now... Number one, let's do some observations on the context prior to verse 12. Here's some key parts, some, and, we'll, and we'll go through this really quickly. Uh, some key parts of the salvation rest of God. The heart and God's word. It, the, the major theme is salvation rest, but some key themes, some key pieces of the salvation rest of God. It, you see the heart mentioned over and over and over, and you see God's word mentioned over and over and over, and, and you have to be careful because sometimes it's, called his voice. So you see his voice mentioned over and over and over, and you see his word mentioned over and over and over. Like, for instance, you, you know the voice. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But in, in chapter 4, verse 2, we have had good news preached to us, the word they heard. You understand? The emphasis on the word. So another key piece, God's wrath. Focused on sinful and disobedient living. You see that. Didn't you see that as we read through that? So that's your second kind of hyphen there or your um, mark there. God's wrath focused on sinful and <coughs> disobedient living. So key parts of this whole salvation rest. It's the heart. It's the word. It's God's wrath on sinful and disobedient living. And there's an emphasis on faith or the lack thereof. Right? Did you see that in this? That's your third point down there, a third blank. And there's a, an emphasis also on diligence. Are you with me? Have you see the blanks that I'm filling in there for you? Does anybody need help or are you lost? Which, which blank did you? I just, uh, let's see, there's, you see four um, hyphens or whatever that are marked off. Faith is the third hyphen down, and diligence is the last one. Okay. So your blanks in all four of those are heart and word, it's the first one. And the second one, it's God's wrath. Focus on sinful and disobedient living. And then the third one is faith. And then diligence. Diligence is everywhere. Verse 6 of chapter 3. Hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Verse 12. Um, take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Verse 13. Encourage one another. Press on. Verse 14. Oh, hold fast from the begin- the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let us fear if a wild promise remains of entering that. Any one of you seem to fall short of it. In verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. I mean, this is these are key parts of this whole salvation rest. All right, so now what we've done is we've looked at verses, primarily the context before verse 12 of chapter 4, right? Now, number two, let's look at the verse that follows verse 12. Okay? What we're trying to do here, sometimes it's helpful to look at everything around it, the verse that you're looking at, before you look at the verse, because then you're going to understand it better. Look at verse 13 of chapter 4. And there is no creature hidden from his side, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What's the point of verse 13? God sees You and I are laid bare before him. Do you know what there's this idea of being laid bare is used has been used in other writings in four different ways. Get this. The first way that it has been used is when a surgeon has an area of focus fully exposed to him. Now, when a doctor does that, cut open and the area exposed to him, how helpless is the one who's cut open how dependent is the one who's cut open on the one who's doing the work another setting in which it is used is a wrestler grabbing his opponent by the throat laid bare now how dependent is the one who's been grabbed by the throat how much in control is the one who's grabbed the throat The third usage of it is an executioner pulling the head back of the condemned to expose the neck. How helpless is the one, and how powerful is the other? And lastly, the pulling the head back to expose the neck of the sacrificial animal in worship. How helpless is the offering, and how much in control is the other one? Verse 13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, that all things are open, laid bare. Guys, God sees you, and you lie there vulnerable, wide open. You cannot control what he sees. He sees everything. You cannot hide anything. He sees everything in me. He sees everything in me. Now, if he's an executioner, we got problems? If he's a merciful savior, we're okay. God happens to be both. Which is he for you? Is the issue. He's a judge, not a vindictive executioner. And in particular, in this passage, in this whole setting, God sees within you to see if the salvation rests is there. That's his point. And the whole tone of being laid open bare, that's serious, isn't it? Surgery is serious. Being put in a death grip around the neck is serious. About to be executed, that's serious. About to be offered as a sacrifice, that's serious. This is a very serious tone of what is going on here. Okay? So how would you describe... Question, how would you describe the sum of the observations so far and the meaning of the surrounding context of verse 12? Well, I'll summarize it this way: God's salvation rest was missed by a lot of Old Testament people, wasn't it? Wasn't that the issue? And they actually became the focal point of his anger and his wrath. Right? And what was at God's concern was the very core of people, their hearts. Do not harden your hearts. God was concerned that the very core of their being was being missed. They were neglecting their hearts. They weren't concerned about the condition of their hearts. And because they weren't concerned about it, they fell horribly. They couldn't even respond to God's word, his voice. God sees all of that. And we lie helplessly exposed before his holy sight. Now, down at the bottom of your first page, what has God given to us to help us discern the reality of his salvation rest? What has God given to you? What has God given to me? to help us see our hearts. Verse 12. His word. For the word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And it's able to what? Here's the point. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. This is what you need. This is what I need. Because when we miss God's rest, we miss it at the level of the heart. So the thing we have to do first and most is we have to be able to get to the heart. Well, how can I get to my heart? I'm so easily deceived. Don't worry. God's provided something to help you see your heart. What is it? It's Word. It's Word. Discipline number one in build. Shepherd your Heart with the Word of God. You get it? So, what a mercy from God to you and to me. He knows what's wrong with you. He knows the hardness of your heart. He knows the hardness of my heart. He saw it all through the wilderness in his people called Israel. He knows our slowness to perceive within us our true condition. He knows we can't even see past our own deceitful sin. He knows how unwilling we are to deal with our true condition. He knows how stubborn we are to deal with our true condition before him. But he has given to you and me, he's given to us something that can help us. Something that allows us to see what is laid bare and open to his own sight. He's very thoughtful. Listen, guys, you don't have to be helplessly, terrifyingly surprised at his judgment when all of a sudden he reveals to you everything that he's been seeing in you. You can see it beforehand and have it be taken care of by the death of Christ on the cross. He's <coughs> this is a mercy from God to sinners everywhere that his word is present. I mean, it's almost like you don't even need that. you can read verse 12 and and get so much out of what is being said here. This is why verse 12 can't stand on its own. You have to see what's, what's going on around it. And by the way, what I, in a sense, kind of just modeled for you is a part of, Interpretation or a part of hermeneutics that is called observation. All we've done is we've just observed a lot around the text. Okay, we looked at context in the Old Testament leading up to it, we looked at um, chapters 3 and 4, we just observed context. We're just making observations. And now what we want to do is we want to turn the corner and we want to take a look at <coughs> verse 12, and we want to observe, and we want to interpret. We want to find out what is the meaning of verse 12. Now, before I do that, do you guys have any questions, comments? Derek? Um,
1: I was just wondering, is there a difference in the word used, like with words, in comparison
2: to when like, Christ
0: with There are um, two primary words that are used. Um, one is logos, and that is what is used in John 1 where it says the word became flesh Um, and then there's the word rhema which is like a message or a speech about Christ sometimes there's overlap in them Um, there's not a huge distinction like you go oh he used this word this way so there's absolutely no way it could ever mean this kind of thing and I, I don't remember, I'm pretty sure it's Logos here if I remember right does anybody have a Greek on him? I looked at it just before we came because I wanted to look at the, another word and seems like I would have noticed if it. I'm pretty sure it's logos here. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions, observations? You want something cleared up? You want to contribute to the line? Any ideas? It is logos. Is it? Which one do you have? Yeah. That was reloading really back? Yeah. Oh, cool. Logos. What do you got? Okay. (laughs) All right. Let's let's do this. Let's take um let's go a little bit further. As always, feel free to get up and move around. Do what you need to do. And we'll go through verse twelve, then we'll take a little break. The word of God. Verse twelve. Let's just think about that phrase, the Word of God. This is what we've been saying um, all year in Bill. The Word of God means it is the words concerning God. It's God being revealed. A a being is being revealed. A person. It's the words concerning God. God. the so words about God his words are not God but sometimes Christians act that way like the words are the end like you've got to know this word period because when you know this word period you win arguments and you're theologically smart and you win. But it is so much more than that. These are words about a person. It's, it's like a letter. If your wife is, poor Tom and his wife are separated, have been apart for quite a while. She's been back taking care of a daughter-in-law who's ill. And if, if they were to write letters back and forth, and she wrote him a letter, he would never look at the letter and go, this is my wife. He would never do that. He would see those words rightly. These are words that reveal my wife. And it's that way, too. We have to remind ourselves of this all the time. I just remember being smitten by this when I was at Calendac Bible Church about my fourth or fifth year in being there. That I had come to a realization that I had been in God's Word a lot, and I was missing God. I was coming to His Word to get truth and to get things right and to make sure, double-check things. But I wasn't necessarily, it wasn't on my heart or my mind that I need to come to this Word to meet with God. Was bankrupt at that point, I felt. It was a major turning point for my Christian life and ministry. These are words that reveal Him. Now, does God view Himself closely tied to His Word? Oh, absolutely. In other words, everywhere in Scripture, obeying His words is seen by Him as obeying Him. Not just rules. Disobeying him is seen as his word is seen as rejecting him personally, not just rejection of break uh, of some laws. In fact, go back to chapter 3, verse 7. Watch this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when this is verse 7 and 8, as when they provoked me. As in the day of trial in the wilderness where your father's tried me by testing me. So he was concerned about his words being observed and not rejected because he tied it to him. It's the word concerning God. Okay, does that make sense? We don't want to miss that. Now, how should we view God's word? Chapter 4 verse 12 gives us kind of this list, a way that you can view God's word. Get this like little laundry list. Here's what the Word of God is. Here's what the Word of God equals. First, it's what? Living. Now, what's interesting is in the Greek, there are different places you can put a word in the sentence to give it emphasis. One of the primary places that you can do that is, is first. And in this case, in this verse, the very first word is the word living, it just starts off living. Now, think about this with me. Look at, um, right before it, verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through the same example of disobedience. I mean, that is just heavy and like, oh, no. And verse 12 goes, living! Alive! Living! And it's not you. It's the word of God. Just like he... The, the warning is there. Don't let yourself tumble down this horrible, horrible pit. And then, but don't worry, alive, living, my word, living. Look back at chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. I was the same stumble is happening. It's tumbling down. That falls away from the living, living God. So in many ways, his word is viewed and given He's living. His word is living. And it's because to help you to not tumble down that horrible place of falling away. So it's in the emphatic position. It's paralleled with the living God. It's an expression of his own life. Just like God is not dead. Just like God is not perishable. Just like God is not insensible to what is around him. Because when you're dead, you have no senses of what is going on around you. His word is not dead. His word is not perishable. His word is not insensible to what is around it. This is not a dead code of laws. This is a living word. What did Peter say? Remember John 6? Disciples of Jesus are falling away by the, by the droves. And Jesus turned to them and says, you guys going to go too? And what did Peter say? Where else are we going to go? Because you have... Words life. In particular, why is this word alive? It's alive for this salvation rest that is a must for you to enter. You gotta tie this idea of living back to the main big broad theme of what's going on. It's this is living word that is alive to make sure salvation rest is in you. Wow, that's huge. <clears throat> Just one word, living how about the word active? Does anybody, does version outside of NAS, have a different word for active? Does anybody have an ESV? Exactly. Is that what it is? Can I have say something? What?
2: This is the uh, Homeland Christian Standard. This is effective in
0: here. Effective. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the idea of active, meaning, y- you know, something can be alive but not active, like you when you sleep. Something can be alive but be very very slow. Something can be alive but dormant. Something can be alive but actually hibernating. Something can be alive but be paralyzed. But not God's word. God's word, guys, is sprung into activity. It has sprung into activity. It is effective. It is effectual. It is powerful. It is energetic. That's the idea that's bound up in this idea of active, effective, effectual, powerful, energetic. And you take that with living, just before it, it is full of living energy to carry out this purpose which God gave to it, which is what? Ultimately, to help you judge and discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart. It is living and it is active for that sense. But whatever is said next, right after living and active, is very important. Let me, th- let me remind you, you don't see this, I don't think it's much anymore, but there was a time when, like whenever you were in a big crowd, it was like somebody thought it would be fun to bring a beach ball. Because you're all sitting around waiting and somebody takes out a big beach ball, they blow it up and they start hitting it around and everybody's hitting it back and forth to each other. And when you're watching that happen, that ball looks like it's alive. And that ball is very active. It's just going all over the place. The only deal is is it's being controlled by independent wills all over the place. It doesn't have a will of its own. It doesn't have a mind of its own. It doesn't have any control over itself. But man, is it alive and active. God's word is not that way. It is alive and it is active It's sharper than a two-edged sword. You don't see people taking out swords at big old crowding events and go, "Whoa!" (laughs) Right? You don't see that. There's a very—you take out a sword because you have one thought in mind, or you take out a knife. In this case, this is the Makaira. It's probably that shorter sword. It's like a big knife. In fact, I, I've been trying to track this down, and I, and I haven't been able to. But there's been some instances, not in Scripture, but outside, where it's referred to as a surgeon's knife. And I gotta track that down more. So it might have been that the word was used for that short sword you kept on your side, and you pull out for hand-to-hand combat if you were a soldier, or for just chopping wood. wood, or chopping off a high priest servant's ear, whatever you needed, you know, whatever you might need it for. It's the same word, and they might have been using that same word to talk about a surgeon's life but when you take that out you don't take it out except for one primary purpose you've got one thought in mind not multiple ideas multiple wills for it you have one will for it sharper than any two-edged sword it's that smaller sword of the legionnaire of the, of the Roman soldier so again it's not a living and active beach ball soft you can kind of bump around and laugh about it it's, th- it's a sword that has a life of its own. It's a word that is sharper than any sword or scalpel. It's actively alive. It's moving under the one will of God, doing what God sent it to do. W- what did he send it to do? Are, there's a heaping on of terms here. Sword. It's a two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit above joints and marrow. I think what's going on here in this soul, spirit, joints, marrow. I don't think he's trying to say anything more than, man, it is piercingly penetrative. If there was a way that you could somehow take the soul of a person and separate it from the spirit, if there was some way that you could take joints and marrow and cut pieces away from each other, this thing could do it. It has that kind of fine tunedness if you would, it can di- can divide it. it, can lay it open, it can expose it. Here, oh, here's the joint, see? And inside the bone, here, do you see we? You see the marrow? It's a tool that allows you to open up and see everything, to distinguish the difference between the marrow and the bone, in order to operate effectually in either realm, to bring about change. It's piercingly penetrated. Ultimately, at the end of the verse, it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What's the difference between your thoughts and what's the difference between your intentions? Well, it can tell the difference. I may not be able to know. That's the point. It has such an ability to do what you and I can't even figure out. So what it is saying here is the word is the perfect critic of your heart. The word of God is the perfect critic of your heart. The perfect discerner of your heart. It's always analyzing your heart. It is always scrutinizing your intentions. It's sifting out the ponderings and the reflections and the conceptions that are deep within your heart and in your mind. It can touch, and it can discern perfectly any wastefulness of thought, any sinfulness. It can point out to you where the righteousness is too. Not just all the negative. It doesn't just point out to you the cancer. It can show you where God is alive and well in you, forming his righteousness in Christ. You can tell the difference between Stirrings in your heart, dreams, purposes, and it is always right. God's Word is always right in what it sees, in the conclusions it draws. Its assessment is always true. Its assessment of me is infallible. It can never be impeached for the conclusion that it draws. On my heart or on yours, guys. So, how do we summarize this whole description of God's Word? Let's put all that together. We kind of took it apart and I'll put it all together. God's Word is not some mere sound that went forth randomly, like it's sent out and it disappears and it ceases to exist soon afterwards. God's word is piercingly penetrative. It it analyzes every motive. It analyzes every intention, every belief perfectly. All disguises get tossed aside and the real person of you is seen within by the word of God. And it is a merciful gift from God to us who does not want you to miss his salvation rest. And if you're going to not miss his salvation rest, you need to have your heart examined well, and he gave you his word to do that. What are your thoughts? Any thoughts or questions, comments?
2: A question that I have? Yes. That, well, it's not an easy question, and yet it is a super easy question, but at the same time... Um, we see word and we think, oh, okay, so we got this thing. It's bound up. It's 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 here in the mind of the writer of this
0: book. Was he? Do you think he was thinking exclusively of the Pentateuch or of the law and the prophets as Jesus talks about? Well, at a minimum, he would have been thinking of, um, I think, all of the Old Testament, because he hasn't hesitated to talk about Moses. And he's been expositing Psalm yeah, yeah. ninety-five. Yeah, yeah. So he's thinking of what is thought of as the Hebrew Tanakh, the mm-hmm. Old Testament, okay. uh, which would be everything I would think. Yeah. Yeah. Other thoughts, conclusions.
2: I think we uh, we have a tendency. Uh, the simplest way is we want to worship the creation rather than the Creator. Mm-hmm. Same thing here. We want to. <clears throat> they were worshiping the Sabbath day rather than what was behind the Sabbath <coughs> the rest. Yes. So we we're very simple-minded, and yet we focus on the wrong thing.
0: And yeah, we could easily do that, too. Yeah. 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 Right down um, Isaiah 55:11. 55:11 so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth <coughs> it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it God is I believe that's a salvation context as well if you look at that you can with the broader context you'll find a very simple or a similar flow of thought in Isaiah 55 that you will you know Hebrews 4 Question down. Is this at the bottom of your page? Again, how does 412 fit into the broader context? Is that right? Yeah. It is the absolute perfect tool given to help you to serve your heart. There's no better thing that God could give you than what He has given you. It is the perfect tool. It should be your best friend, guys. Yeah, I Absolutely, kind of cool. please. Says, uh, I
1: was kind of struggling with this 3.12 where he says, uh, mm. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. I was kind of struggling well, how do you guard yourself against an unbelieving heart? Because, I
2: mean,
1: if it's unbelieving, you're kind of lost to begin with, right? But I thought it was kind of cool that he's talking to the brothers. Mm-hmm. So he's not saying guard yourself against an unbelieving heart necessarily, but take care of brothers lest there be in you collectively an unbelieving heart. Yeah. Then he goes on, therefore exhort one another every day. So you guard your body against and not yourself against an unbelieving heart, but you guard your body against an unbelieving heart by exhorting one another. Yeah.
0: That, the, your, I think you pointed out something really important there in verses 12 and 13. There's a big emphasis on a one another that, and we're going to talk about this in regards to your homework when we, after we take a quick break here. Uh, it'll be a good segue into that. This is the the obvious, obvious implication is you should think personally here. What, what does this mean for me with my heart and God's word? But there's obvious uh, an implication of what does this mean for us with all of our hearts? What, what do we do with this with each other in the church? You know, as a small group, what, what do we do with each other? W- what point does this play? And, and I think that's where you can come back to verses 12 and 13. And you remember Jeremiah 17, 9, and 10? The heart is. It so make a Make a list of all that is wicked. The biggest wickedness you can think of. And what do you still have to put at the top of the list? Jeremiah says Beyond all else, it is wicked. Beyond anything else. And yet God has given to us a word. Now there's a, there is a sense, I think, in which you can as a Christian where there is evidences of unbelief where you're maybe not trusting. I think you can use God's word and it can help you. But I think he's talking about more than that here. He's talking about in this context in this collection of you brothers I'm telling you there's a really good chance that there are some in here who look like brothers but you ain't. you got to help each other. Not so that you gotta root out the, the culprit and Squash So Since you can be merciful to him, Preach the gospel to him. So you can help each other. Why don't we take a break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about your homework a little bit. All right? All right? You guys aren't asking very many questions, and that's okay. I don't know if you're asleep or what, but if you got ideas, I'd love to hear from you. Um, so give us some thought, talk a little bit, and come back we'll talk to you. All right, let's see. Tyler, I want to. Can you ask your question that you can't ask me in the break? I want to. I want to yes. cycle back to. I think it's important to make sure that you get this clarified if If I wasn't there.
1: Um, I just asked about the salvation and rest being. Um, you can see God working in yeah. someone's life, like salvation, and rest, and salvation being the same thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, and that was my intent, was to say salvation rest is, is salvation. The, the rest that is being talked about here is salvation rest. Because the interesting point of, of Psalm 95 is that the Redeemer who brought Israel out and then gave them cycles of rest to observe religiously, and, and then even gave them a land that they entered into a Joshua that was supposedly a rest from the wilderness, wandering, that they did. There has to be something bigger in God's mind than just religious practice rest for David to say what God said, they didn't enter in my, enter my rest. Well, wait a minute, how can they not enter into his rest when they were practicing rest all along? It's because there's a salvation rest. There's a, a religious observance rest, but all of that points to something much bigger and better that is salvation rest. And Paul says something about that very clearly in Colossians 2. Why don't you guys turn there real quick? Verse 16. Colossians 2 verse 16, therefore let no one, I'm sorry, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ. <clears throat> so he's saying, don't get your conscience all bound to these kinds of things. <laughs> Don't settle for the shadow when you can have the one who's casting the shadow. Okay, Paul says something similar in Galatians 4, verse 8. Let's turn back there. And Remember Paul's whole concern with Galatia. Yeah, I'm sorry, Galatians 4, verse 8. Remember his whole concern with the believers in Galatia is that I'm, I'm not. Are you guys abandoning the gospel? However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those by which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, I love that. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. In other words, the gospel comes, and it's not about days anymore. It's not about months. It's not about seasons. It's not about festivals anymore. It's about Christ. Those are just the basic elemental things. They're shadows. Christ is the substance. Why would you settle for those things when Christ has come? What are you guys doing? I fear for you. Did you hear anything I said, Paul says? It came in the gospel. If you hear anybody else preaching any other thing other than the gospel that we came uh, came and preached, let them be accursed. Chapter 1. I'll say it again. Paul's very serious about this stuff.
1: So is it possible that some of those people that weren't believers? Yeah.
0: Very possible. I mean, just like it's very possible among our church, there's people who aren't believers sure. in any church.
1: They're doing all those things, but and they may even call themselves
0: And the, 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 the thing, sin, indwelling sin will always do this. It will always draw us away from the gospel. It will always draw us away from Christ to put a focus on stuff we can do. Believers get suckered into that. Unbelievers who are checking the whole thing out, who might think they're a part of all that, they go with it too. And so the point is, um, Hebrews 3, verse 12 and 14, 13, oh, Take care of each other. Guard one another. Make sure there's not a deceitful heart, a heart that's been harmed by the deceitfulness of sin. You guys have to care for each other. Because if it's hard to discern your own heart and where it's at, you need others to come around you and help. Right? Thoughts? What did you guys chat about while you were from break? Tom? Huh.
3: We didn't chat about this. We talked about buying a home. But <laughs> <laughs> Great. But, you know, it, when Nathan asked the question before the break, it, it made me think of this. And I, I really think in ways that ties to what Tyler was asking, too. And, uh, and it's God's grace. And as far as I can tell, and I'm... Like 99% positive this, and I'd love if somebody has another thought. There's only four ways we, in this time that we live, we receive God's grace, and it's from His Word. Us being, in it. it's being in the church, and interacting with others in the church and worshiping in the church. Uh, our relationships with one another, in prayer, and I know in my life of being a Christian, I see Christians amputate one or more of those. And and I really believe that when we amputate a way that that God designed for us to receive grace, it stunts our growth, it it kills our growth. And I think we need to look at it you know, know, the Hebrews 3.13 is You know, the way we encourage one another, if we're not doing that, we've just amputated one way that we receive that grace.
0: Absolutely. And we need to do church in a way that gives and provides a platform for the believers to be able to do this with each other. And we need to be careful to not do church in a way that takes that platform away and gives believers just comfort in attending something and then leaving. And then coming back and attending. And then leaving. And then coming back and attending and you're never involved in this, I I want to help you, will you please help me? Let's live together, let's bring God's word to bear on my life, I'll bring it to bear on your life. You have to be very careful to not do that because you're amputating a main artery of grace coming in to the body of Christ in your own life and maybe into somebody else's life if we do that. So there's got to be a, a sense in which we as the church are, are able to have this kind of one-anotherism going on all the time. Now,
1: Scott, yes. Um, I have a question 16. Sixteenth. Okay. And then, um, for, for what we're reading now and kind of what we're going through, speaking about like the salvation rest, and if maybe I'm just not clicking. Um, like I'm thinking of salvation rest in the meantime, Or to individuals
0: that were I wouldn't. I wouldn't try to make that distinction okay. either way, because <laughs> chapters three and four, he's very much talking to the brethren. Mm-hmm. Verse twelve of chapter three. Chapter three, verse one. Holy brethren, you don't. He's he's talking to the community that sees itself as brothers and sisters in Christ, and so he addresses them as such. Now, in doing so. He is not, in calling them brethren, he is not saying, and I know because God has given me revelation that every single heart here is indeed a brother in Christ. So you have this Old Testament picture of you know, Israel was the people of God and yet there was just this tiny remnant that actually was indeed the people. And there's a sense in which that's true in any collection of believers anywhere.
3: I'm not just based on my general knowledge before getting here today, that might help there. The book of Hebrews is is written to Jews that became Christians and they want to go back to their Judaism Great, and that's the, yeah. that's who the author <laughs> is talking to. Okay. Yeah, I, sh- so I should have mentioned that. So it's not more. Gentiles. It's yeah. They were once upon a time they, were, they, they are Jews and they have come to Christ and they
1: I can go back a while. So it's in the process of this. Uh, this is where you were, This is where God has brought you. Why are you going to go back? This is the thing that's given you to hold on to stay in the place in which He has brought you.
0: Yes, that's a, that's a good point. Or you could say they are going
1: back. They they, they yeah. want to do it by works. Okay. Yeah. And he brought you into. <clears> he <throat> keeps you here by His word. Yeah.
0: And his whole the whole burden of His argument starts off in in Hebrews two the exaltedness of Jesus Christ above angels, above Moses as a high priest. Um, and there's warnings that come all along in the Book of Hebrews, um, and it kind of gets this climax in chapter six mm-hmm. chapter ten. Be careful. They're not saying because because we're not sure if this atoning work of Christ saves you or not. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, look, this is the way it is. When God's work goes on in the world, and people get saved and they gather together, and you've got to take care of each other. Lest there be in any one of you a heart that's deceived by sin. Cares for each other. Yeah, that's a good point. Thanks. Now, I want to do point four at the top of your next page because you can almost <coughs> feel the weight of, um, though, though we're talking about a, a wonderful means of grace, the word of God. You can begin to think, um, if you're not careful, wow, I feel the weight of all that I need to do. <coughs> I feel the weight of what we need to do for each other. Now, why has the author written what he has here at this point in verses 14? 16 since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold fast our confession what's the root and the ground for us holding fast what your ability to our sharpness with one another to be able to help each other do it what's the basis of our holding fast to our confession of faith oh we got a high priest What's the high priest do? You got the people, you got God. What's the high priest do? He intercedes. He stands between. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because of this kind of high priest we have, draw, let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He knows how to just inject the high priest who was the sacrifice. He's on the throne now of grace. And he's preaching the gospel to them. In a the sense again, he's putting Christ as the, the focal point. If you look at chapters 3 and 4 kind of together, This whole point in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 at the beginning was, let's talk about Jesus, the the apostle, and high priest of our confession. Just kind of threw that term out there. High priest of our confession. And how's the end of chapter? Our high priest. Atonement being made for us. And in between all of that, oh guys, don't miss the salvation rest that the high priest has brought and intercedes for. And is at the throne of grace. Keeping, don't miss it. In fact, to help you along the way, what have I given you? Word of God and each other with the Word of God. Does that make sense? Now, let's talk a little bit about your um, applic- your sheet, App- uh, your blue um, homework thing, and then we're gonna finish up. There's a group coming in here at nine today, and I want to make sure that we there's no evidence of us at all once they come in. I guess somebody's doing a um, worship, uh, like a little conference in here, a workshop in here. I want to make sure that we have uh, given them plenty of space to come in and do what they need to do. Uh, let's just think about these questions. This is your homework for next time. I just want to work through it with you a little bit, the blue sheet. Uh, th- by the way, if I look rightly, your question's, Application of number five, application of 412, and its surrounding context. See the homework. They're the same questions, okay? Just so that you know that. Okay, so it's not something different. It's the same thing. So I don't care what you can look at, whichever one you want. Doesn't matter. But when you do your homework, I want you to do it on the blue sheet at the can Number one, you're just going to think of what has been revealed to me about God Himself in this passage. Period. Stop. Full stop. Don't ever interact with God's word and run quickly to, oh, I know what I need to go do. There's probably plenty to go do. There is. But stop first and ask yourself, what does this tell me about the kind of God that I have? you understand? I mean, don't. That's a, the, here's, here's how subtle it is, disciplining your heart, shepherding your heart, to come to the Word of God to meet God. You can come to the Word of God and be studying it like crazy and just, oh my goodness, all kinds of fruit from it. And then just take off from it running. Think, I've got to go do this. I'm so excited about what I've seen. You can share it with everybody else. And, and you and I, we we played leapfrog right over God. Just full stop. What does this tell us about God? If you just had to think for a minute so far of what you've seen, what would you? how would you describe the kind of God you have based on what you've seen here in Hebrews 3 and 4? What would you say? be some descriptive terms you'd up. God is peaceful. Awesome. He's what? Peaceful. He's peaceful. He's, He's awesome. peaceful. what else? Awesome. Awesome. What else? Gracious. gracious. He's gracious. <coughs> He's knowing. All known. All knowing. See I think I don't know if you've noticed this. I, I've come and I'm probably, maybe I'm swinging too far one way, I always do, so I go back and forth. I think one of our first applications from being in God's word simply just needs to be worship. Oh my goodness, we just saw God. Which to me just makes how-to preaching just so flat. Look, there's so much to do, and yes, God's word teaches us what to do, but it ain't an instruction manual like the one from my DVD player. It reveals a person. It reveals a being. So I want you to give some thought to, number one, just what does it say about God? And this needs to happen every time you're God's word. So, <coughs> this is what you need to hold your elders accountable to from the pulpit. Graciously. Help us. Number two, how should my approach to God's word be influenced by this passage? Wow. Knowing what you now know about God's word, what should be your demeanor and your attitude when you come to God's word? Things you should be careful of? Things you should avoid? What things should I do? Be thoughtful of? Any, any ideas come to your mind coming uh, based from what we've seen today in terms of your attitude towards God's word? I'm good.
3: What? Humbly. Okay. Humbly.
2: Expecting. Expecting a living and active living.
0: Expecting. Come expecting. <coughs> yeah, that's good. What else? Take it more serious. For serious, huh? What else? It's hard to uh, balance that when you mm. have to grab yourself. I appreciate um, what John Piper says about what he says about his own heart in the mornings. He says that he feels like he has to get saved all over again every morning. I mean, and you guys know this. you, you know, like, you know, because there's a new heart in you. I'm supposed to really want to be here. I'm supposed to really want to be near this God. And there's a lot of things I'm supposed to be and want. I don't feel it much today. Or maybe I don't feel it much this week. Or maybe I don't feel it much this year, month, whatever. But you do it. And you drag your carcass into the presence of this word. Why? Living.
3: It's alive.
0: And you're not right now, but it's alive. And let it do its work on you. And remember, there's a high priest. He's on the throne of grace. Not on the throne of works for you, but on the throne of grace for you. Mm. Toward you. Okay, so think about your approach to God's word. Number three, how should my interaction with my brothers and sisters in Christ, who are are prone to sin as I am, be influenced by this passage? we've talked about that a little bit, haven't we, with Hebrews 3? In fact, um, look at it again. Notice what... um, the writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, you can run around very suspicious of one another. We're not to become the chief heart inspectors here looking for unbelieving an unbelieving heart, and yet we are to take ownership of one another, aren't we? You encourage one another. Day after day, you exhort one another, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You come to care for one another. You invite people into your life. Don't just sit there quietly and say, oh, I'm not really sure I want anybody to... What would I do if somebody came to me Want that? No. Beat them to the punch. Invite them into your life. Because you know. I mean, look what's at stake, guys. You you can miss it at the level of the heart and not even know it. You want to stay that way? Not one of us wants to be in that vulnerable position. Go to somebody and say, please, enter into my life on a regular basis with the Word of God and help me. Yeah? I
2: think that God shows each one of us different parts of His Word at different times. And so if you've had uh, been in the Word, I'm going to ask you, what has the Lord shown you in that Word? About that Word that you can share with me, and here's what He's showing me. And, you know, I, maybe it's, I see that you're not doing that, so here's what He's showing me. So it's not that I'm being judgmental of Him, but I'm sharing what He's
0: shown me that could help you. Right, that's a great point. But the, the point is, after we have interacted with each other as brothers in Christ, or as you've interacted with your wife or your kids or whatever, it, it, there should not be this strong remaining odor <coughs> of, well, I know what Scott thinks about my life. We need to walk away from it thinking, I know what God and his word says about my life. That's why we need to be God-centered, scripture-centered in the way that we care for one another. And and this takes all the pressure pressure off of you. Look, it's not up to you to help them discern alone, you alone, you, to help them discern the differences between the thoughts and intentions of their heart. It is your job to simply go, let me serve you with a meal. And now I I want you to serve me. let's, Let's drag these hearts that we have before this and let God see us let us see ourselves as he sees us. We're laid bare open to him anyway. And he gave us his word. Let's, let's do it together. Let's care for each other that way. Look at your quote now that I gave you. This is a, I've adapted this somewhat from C.J. Haley's uh, book on humility. This is a mark of humility. <laughs> I love it how he says this. Although I can display competence in a variety of areas. This is never so in respect to discerning my sin. I'm not competent to discern my sin. On my own, I will never develop a competency for recognizing my sin. Help me today to not forget that others see what I do not. Where I'm blind to sin, their vision is often 20-20. And by your grace, they can impart clarity to help protect me from the hardening effects of sin. I need others today to exhort me, encourage me, and correct me. They are your gift to me in my battle against sin, and I will never grow out of this need, never. In fact, I believe in his book, he's he's has been talking about Hebrews 3.12 and 13. So, and the way that we gain clarity from one another is by making sure that we use God's word with each other. Okay? Number four. How should my mission to the lost around me be influenced by this passage? This passage has to give us thought about okay, what happens when I come up against a lot of people, or any person whose heart is completely hardened by their sin and they do not know Christ in a saving way? How does this passage inform me of how I care for them? What is what, you're nodding, Omri? What what is this? What is this, what's on your mind?
1: You, you Use the
0: there's nothing else to use. It's, we got to use the Word of God. Ted, what else? Well,
2: if someone's calling himself brother, I mean, you, have to right. you have
0: to help them yeah. with, with the Word of God to, to bring them to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a, what does this say in terms of technique? Mm-hmm. This says nothing about technique. This is about you know, let's just put the Word of God central. I'll, I want to be humble because I know what this Word does to my own heart. And where I stand before it, there is nothing that would make you, in the way that the Word of God operates in your own life, become cavalier with it. Although we'll do that at, at times, won't we? Not because of pride, but you must come gently, humbly, um, but intentionally. And bring God's Word to bear. Any other thoughts on that, on the mission?
1: say... Yes, it's not, it's not what I think about it or what I think, it's not my view of it it's here's what the Bible says
2: so, so there's no
0: it's good you know, it's good, Ben and
2: and I think there's a tendency especially when hearing about the sword of the spirit and a tendency to think of actually this, the Bible as a sword that we wield um, where I don't know that's exactly what's going on in Ephesians but um, But I think there's nothing about the way in which we wield it that's going to wield the results. It's ultimately we bring the word God to bear on somebody, and the word God itself is what pierces the heart, not our wielding in it, not our technique. It's the word God and God moving in that, so it's our confidence in our own technique and using the, the exact words. It's exposure to the actual word God.
0: That's great. That's a good point. Excellent. So, if you have any relationships with somebody who... people who are not Christians, the first thing that you would want to evaluate in that relationship is how central is God's word to that relationship. Because it needs to be. If they have any hope of having what is keeping them from God's salvation, there's any hope in that being taken care of and removed it's only going to be found in God's Word, primarily as the Word reveals the cross and the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Um, so we need to be thinking about that. And lastly, number five, how does this help you understand what discipline one, the heart is all about in build? I, I would hope that you would be able to be well-equipped from Hebrews 4.12 and the starting passage to, if anybody said, well, what's, what's, what, are you, what are you talking about, shepherding your heart? You'll hear that in our church. People talk about that. I need to shepherd my heart. You need, you need to shepherd your heart. Somebody says, whoa, "Whoa, what is that? What are you talking about?" I would hope that you would have significant content to be able to say, to speak to, in regards to that. Well, let me tell you where that came from. Let me give you an example from Scripture. Right? All right. Any other final things or thoughts, ideas? God's word is awesome. God is awesome. So let's pray. Just thank him for his word. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace, where Jesus <coughs> is, and we come before a high priest who has been praying for us and keeping us in ways that we haven't even been thinking of and we rest in the way that he intercedes for us to you. We're so glad that he talks to you about us all the time and um, can't wait someday to find out more about what kinds of things he prayed for us while we were here to keep us. We are totally impressed, God, by you, what you as father and son have done to save us at the cross and what you have done by your spirit to reveal to us your word and the cross. And Father, I pray for us this morning, Lord, that though though we may feel like we have been slackers with your word, this living and active Sharper than any two edged sword, piercingly penetrative word. I I pray that we would not feel defeated, but that we would be exhorted and encouraged to see what you have given each one of us. That will help us to see um, our hearts more like you do. You've given us your word, and I pray, Lord, that you would draw us forward into greater discipline with your word, not so that we might be impressed with what we're doing, not so that we might offer you works to gain or change our standing with you, improve our standing with you. Our standing with you cannot be improved and it cannot be decreased because it is based on Christ and what he has done alone. But instead, help us to use your word in a way that just reveals to us where we're at, our hearts are at so that we might follow you so we might love you so that we might worship you and obey you with right motives so God we rest in you and what you have done we thank you so much for your awesome word that reveals you you are merciful and you are concerned that we would be saved you are concerned that we would know your salvation rest. And you are concerned that your son Jesus, who is that rest for us and has accomplished it for us, would not be missed by our hearts. So I pray for my brothers here that you would work in them today and um, encourage them with your word. And uh, Lord, we look forward to being together tomorrow night as we gather around your word again in worship. We pray that you would Work in our hearts to change us and to glorify your Son. that's in His name we pray. Amen.